This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Death by Incarceration presents, in association with Crawl Space Media, Injustice, a new wrongful conviction podcast with a focus on advocacy. Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez are each serving life sentences for the 1987 murder of Sean Nelson, despite the existence of evidence that could have cleared them had it not been withheld at their trial. Now that our production team has obtained that previously lost evidence, will it be enough to right an injustice of more than 30 years? It's crazy because there's a confession. (laughs) There's a confession. He did confess. It's recorded. It's on a tape. Injustice. Romance MacArthur, by his own admission, is responsible for the death of Sean Nelson. Yes, it was an accident. And that in and of itself does not make MacArthur a murderer. No, Michael Gore, the man whose head he raised a gun and pulled the trigger in broad daylight, that makes him a murderer. If, like he said in his confession, that the gun went off accidentally, that simply makes him a killer. Maybe I'm splitting hairs. Based on all the evidence, that is, all the evidence, including his confession to Peruto and his apparent multiple confessions, both to Baby Rock and Hector Rios, the killing of Nelson does not paint a picture of a cold-blooded act. And even more than that is what we're going to discuss today, the letters. Episode 5, you guys. I'm Spencer Daniels, joined once again by Lisa Spees. Hey, Lisa. Hello. Uh, This will likely be the penultimate episode of the series. That is, unless the investigators and lawyers that are working behind the scenes as we speak can make a case to get June and Spanky back in front of a judge. And we truly feel like that will happen, whether it evolves out of this podcast getting heard by the right people or if it happens organically. We don't care how it happens just that it does. If you come into advocacy work with sights set on fame or accolades or credit, you're going to be in for a long day. Hell, I admit, I walked into this optimistically naive, saying stuff like, 100%, we're going to get these guys out because they're innocent, when in actuality, it takes a little bit of luck to go along with all the hard work. And we still hold out hope that good fortune will shine a light on us. Hell, maybe Romance himself will have a change of heart and decide to come forward. He has made it abundantly clear that at this time, he has no interest in doing so. Now, that is a vast departure from what he personally told June over the course of several years through correspondence the two maintained. I I think the letters are the most significant part of this case because it does, in a sense, show some remorse on MacArthur's part. It also shows the character of June. We'll get more into what that means in a minute, And obviously, because we haven't been in contact with romance, we don't have June's side of these conversations. 
the letters are very telling for a number of reasons. Starting not too long after the trial ended, within the first year or so, which in the context of 33 years in prison is practically next day, Romance began writing to June. And over the course of the next 20 years, they keep in touch. And we don't have every letter. We don't have any of them from June back to Romance. And it doesn't appear to be consistent. We have a lot from 1991, 1992, when they were really flying back and forth. It should be noted that Romance's initial attempts to reach out to June went unanswered. They got lost somewhere, possibly due to the name June was using as Emmanuel versus Emilio. Apparently, the first letter or two really laid things out. Why he did what he did. What he thought was going to happen. The dirt on Peruto and King. How his disdain for Spanky involved him saying stuff like, he doesn't understand why he didn't knock him off back in the day, and how he wanted to peel Spanky like an orange. Now, before you call me a boomer, I'll admit, I'm not 100% sure what that means. Even though I consider myself relatively hip... I remember the, the phrase, peel your cap back, which means to kill someone, to shoot him in the head. But the orange thing, I guess, I guess it's the same. I guess it's the same thing. So, where were we? Oh, yeah, letters, 91, 92. Then a, then a lull, picked up again in 97, and then again after a lengthy pause in 2009. So, 20 years total. There may have been more. This is, this is the bulk of what we have been given access to. And... As much as I would love to say that romance came in, got in a sound booth, and read his letters to us, I can't. So what we did for the purposes of this show is actually hire somebody to play the part of romance. Certain passages that we found particularly significant or that tie into the narrative that we have presented over the course of the previous four episodes. And we'll be breaking from our linear storytelling here Instead of presenting the excerpts in chronological order, we have them separated by topic. Now, that will make more sense if we lump all the pertinent pieces together, as the, the dates they were written is far less important. So you hear a clip, then if necessary, we'll interpret what we think it means. So that's my interpretation of the letters, and this is all based on one-sided conversations. Is there anything that I missed or mischaracterized, Lisa? I don't think so. I suspect that the lulls in conversation had more to do with what was going on with romance at the time. I think he probably reached out when he was curious how June was feeling about something reaching out in 91, 92. And so many letters going back and forth at that time, maybe wanting to see if how angry June was, or if he was going to potentially retaliate in any way. I think the letters in, in, 2009 and after were more about what he could get from June's daughter, Mary, or from the family in that way. Um, so I think a lot of it had to do with what was what was going on with romance more than anything else. Yeah, that's a fair, fair assessment. Okay, so on to the letters. Uh, first, regarding Charles Peruto. November 1st, 1991. I hope you get that letter from how sincere I am about this thing that's going to take place soon. I heard you had a decent lawyer named Harry Shea. Perfect. He's good and better than a lot of known flunkies like Peruto. In my letter, the other one I wrote, I explained how Peruto sold you out to Starbucks and Don. And then claim he don't even know me after I've been in his office numerous of times. He's a flunky. September 17th, 
1997. I've been meaning to ask you, are you in contact with Peruto? September 30, 1997. I asked you about Peruto. Are you going to answer me on that? You talked about corrupt things, and I want to touch on that for a minute. I come across some strange characters, and I be hearing the strangest shit. But this kid I met told me some wild shit that I want you to dissect. I might not be law book smart, but I know what's corrupt and what's not. I want you to raise your antennas and peep this. Now this kid flipped on this man. He didn't tell me his name, so I'll call him John Doe. The kid flipped on John about an armed robbery. Dig me? John gets 60 years flat. No parole. But check out how dirty these people played John. Before John's indictment came back from the grand jury, the kid tells the DA, look, I've admitted what really happened to a lawyer. The DA walks out the room without saying nothing. Ten minutes later, they take the kid back to where they was keeping him. The DA never brought it back up, so the kid thought, fuck it, and went along with the bogus charges. So here's where the shit really gets wild. Now the lawyer who had his info that he was supposed to report, his ass is shaking because his legal career is in jeopardy because he's bound by legal oath, which is true, because I asked the law bookworm to report any crimes, especially felonies, that's admitted to him. Dig me? So when John goes on trial, the day that the kid is scheduled to sing, the lawyer, he knows that it's going to come out that he had this info and didn't report it. So to save his ass, because in actuality he broke the law, he goes to the DA and admits that he withheld info. But the DA and the lawyer are each other's nemesis, and the DA scares the shit out of him into being quiet as far as letting the defense know that he's told the DA about the info. Do you see what happened? The info was John's ace. And no Trump was in the deck. But see, the defense didn't use the info as evidence, so the DA had no idea that it was coming. But the lawyer knew. So to keep him from getting caught up, he tipped the DA to what John was planning to use. And in turn, John got ambushed. You digging me, baby pa? I was like, oh, snap. These motherfuckers really do stick together. Anyhow, the kid went back to help his man. I think the DA got bounced off the case because he was a potential witness for conspiring with the lawyer for not reporting that the kid had admitted to the robbery. The kid finally admitted everything, including where the tools were at. Plus, he admitted the part about the DA bragging that he had the lawyer in a room scared to death of losing his law profession and possibly getting charged. The lawyer couldn't deny that he was in the DA's office the day that the kid was scheduled to sing because everybody has to sign in and out. So the evidence was right there. April 20, 2009. Are all your avenues closed to get back? I ask that because there's some things that I know that I always wondered why they were never used on your part. As you know, Peruto got on his belly against you. I can't be specific right now, but I will when the time comes. So here's what this all means. So what Romance is getting at here further reinforces what we've been saying from the start. He's speaking in code, as he will often do when discussing the particulars of the case or crimes that were committed. He says a person, the kid, told him he cooperated against a friend, John. This is an allegory for him testifying against June and Spanky. John is June. It's, it's not an elaborate code. And what went down between Roger King and Peruto? 
Of course, when he says blank Staubach and Don blank, it's Roger Staubach, Don King. It's it's Roger King. It's it's, it's not the Da Vinci Code. Hell, it's it's barely national treasure. But he says he told King about the taped confession in Peruto's office. You know, the one where he states unequivocally that he alone killed Sean? King said nothing, never brought it up again. So romance went along with the sham trial. He also talks about going back to court to help June, and that King was removed from the case for, his words, conspiring with Peruto to suppress evidence. He tells June that King bragged that he had Peruto scared of losing his law license and maybe getting charged. And if you listened to the interview with Peruto, I brought this exact line up to him. And if you remember, Peruto sort of laughed it off. And I actually believe romance in this case. And furthermore, he admits everything, including where the murder weapon is. And Peruto can't deny he was in King's office at the same time as him because there are logbooks that have to be signed upon entry. This has all been verified. He asks if Peruto can be charged with perjury, which, as we know, never happened. And he claims to have evidence Peruto betrayed him and that he will be specific later, when necessary. That theme that continues to come up over the course of the letters. It's always later. It's always some unspecified time. So, first batch of letters. Thoughts on those? I know it's a lot of stuff that we've touched on already. I feel like, like you and I have talked about, a lot of this is, I think he's trying to figure out exactly what June knows already. And I think he's baiting him to believe that romance will be helpful to June at a later time. He talks about information that June doesn't know or things that might be helpful to him, but it's always down the line. It's never, I'm going to go forward right now. Okay, so next we move to the letters pertaining to his motive, which, as we've discussed on earlier episodes, was revenge. Revenge for the lies that were told to him by Itchy. November 20, 1991. I was real mad about what I heard when I was on the streets, but when I thought back to 87 and that thing that happened between me and you and the guy from the Little Rascals, I said to myself, damn, this shit gotta be true. And when Itchy, that bitch, told me that he had got me locked up, it turned into revenge. Because it was low of him. Now, I don't know if she was lying or not, but at the time, my mind was clicking. And I was putting things together like Lego pieces. December 1st, 1991. Jay, I could never hate you on my own. You know, Starbuck couldn't even attempt to try and put it in my gut. That's where hate comes from, the gut. I never had it. Now, angry, mad, hurt, and I wanted revenge is all I could think about. And I only done those things because of what I heard. I done some cruel things to you, and people think it was to get out in five years, but they don't know me at all. I go on all feelings. January 4, 1992. Jay, I can't help but to think about the shit he caused between me and you. And then this time, the silly ass shit over some stupid bitch don't even know how to spell her name. September 16th, 1997. Someday, I'll give you the knowledge on what I know he tried to do, because I know he wouldn't. September 30, 1997. Also, Aaron said things might look cloudy to you right now on why he made the moves he made. He 
May 6, 2009. My problem with Spanky was the moves I heard he was planning to do over this girl. May 21st, 2009. The thing with Spanky thought I had a strong dislike for him. I never hated the dude. For one, he was never a threat. Hands up. To me, he always did sneaky shit. I'm not going too deep into it here. And you know some of the things I'm talking about that had me upset. Mary will explain more detail of what I'm talking about, but the thing in 87, and then the thing with Itchy in 89, now, you say, a stinking bitch, but June, have you ever questioned this guy about her? This guy acted like a nut over that. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you ever knew. I was with her on the side in 87, but it was nothing to hang my hat on. You knew how I moved. In 89, I didn't care for this guy. When to me, he started going off the deep end over her. I told you before about what she told me. Why would she say that? The dude showed his hand when he started acting nutty. All right. So MacArthur refers to himself as Aaron for some reason, and Spanky is Andrew. Andrew equals Angel, of course. And then there's Spanky with the Little Rascals reference. June now gets referred to just as Jay, and he tells June that it may not seem clear why he implicated him and Spanky in this murder. But he says something took place that he knows June knew about, but didn't tell him. He says he will touch on that and about Itchy later. By the way, when he talks about her not knowing how to spell her name, it's Itchy with an I-E at the end. You know, instead of the traditional way someone named Itchy might spell it with a Y. Anyways, you remember back in episode two, we, we talked about the complicated love triangle. Well, this is it. This is, this is about as complicated as it gets. But again, he'll touch on it later. His dislike of Spanky at this time is apparent. Moving on. This is a short one, but I thought worth noting. When he mentions his car. September 30, 1997. Is there any way of finding my first Soft and Smooth? So Soft and Smooth was the name of his car. It was a a sticker across his windshield. When he asks June if that car can be found. Another thing we mentioned previously is that no forensic analysis was ever done to the car, which certainly would have turned up blood. And of course, there's the shell casing that Romance himself found after the car got back from the police impound. I guess he thinks if the car can be found and tested for real, it would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Sean was killed in his car proving the innocence of June and Spanky. Shit, the car is the scene of the crime. I don't think we ever learned what became of the car, so obviously this must have turned into a dead end if if it was pursued at all. Now, this next clip we included previously in a larger context talking about Peruto, but I wanted to highlight this part specifically for another reason, where he, he references the murder weapon. September 30, 1997. admit this one is not as clear 
And that's why, that's why we're trying to break it down a second time. He says he admitted everything. He doesn't specify exactly who he admitted this to. I guess King. I only say that because it, it wasn't in the confession tape, unless it was during the, the nine-minute gap in recording. But he says he admitted everything, including the location of the murder weapon. When he says tools, that's what he means, in case that was unclear. And ultimately, he believes King was removed from the case based on his, romances, misconduct claims. I don't know. I, I don't know that someone as powerful as King would get removed from a high-profile case just in that it was a capital murder case. I mean, you're telling me that King would allow himself to be removed from a case and padding his death numbers based on what amounts to hearsay from a criminal. I don't know if I buy that. I think King's ego would have made it pretty hard. I mean, what do you, what do you think, Lisa? Could, could King have been removed based on a hearsay claim from romance? Not singularly from a hearsay claim from romance. That really would, I mean, this is a man who's admitted to killing two people at this point. Uh, he has very little credibility coming into the game. And one of the first time, first things any, well, I won't say any, but a lot of convicted murderers would say is, oh, well, they did this wrong or they did that wrong. And they're looking for technical things, you know, to point their, to point to that them not getting a fair shot. So no, th- this, this is ridiculous. Agreed. So he says he was surprised when the verdict came in August 28th, 1997. The guy you mentioned from Hancock and Cambria, that's the first I ever heard of him. If you say we didn't know him, then I know for sure I don't. Remember, I didn't stick around. I read the results, and actually, I was surprised. September 17th, 1997. The reason I said I was surprised about that thing is because I knew it wasn't real. But the guy you had working on that design was weak. One time he spoke to me, and I was like, So obviously he says he was surprised by the verdict because he knew the entire case was a lie. He knew that better than anyone. He's he's the one that made up the lie. And for all intents and purposes, what he says is that June lost the case. Lisa, want to jump in, make overall thoughts on, on this portion of the letters before we move on. I think it's kind of a continuation from the first portion of the letters. Most of what he's saying is to endear himself I think a bit to June and making or trying to make June believe that he feels sorry for what he did Um, I don't really believe that he truly did because he never went forward with any of these things that he says that he knows or that he could prove Um, that if he if he ever had I think that would show true remorse Um, but it's it's he never actually acts on anything he rehashes, you know, the verdict and this and that when he set this whole thing up. He went forward with these stories. Why should he be surprised? He knew what King wanted him to do when when he supposedly went in and he was going to take the fall for all of this with King. And then he turns around and testifies against Junus Spanky. And then he says he's surprised by the verdict. Why were why are you surprised? You shouldn't be surprised. You saw what happened with Peruto on the stand, and then you've testified against them too. Give me a break. I mean, that's that's insane. Some additional notes uh, above and beyond stuff specific to the trial or the evidence or anything concrete. 
some, these are some thoughts and observations and takeaways from the letters. Now, over the course of the letters, the recurring theme is romance reiterating how he plans to help, like you just said, rather just that he plans to help without ever giving specifics. He says things like, you know, your problems will be solved in a matter of time. I'll speak on that in the future. Everything will be the same on my part, just a matter of getting it done. I wish I was out there to come through for you, but I'll, I'll come through it in another way. You don't deserve the shit you're going through. We'll talk more later. We'll talk more in person. It's the same thing over and over. And shit drives me insane. These themes, these, these types of statements continue to come up over the course of many letters, and he perpetuates it for years. We don't have the letters from June, but you can tell what kind of man he is by the way Romance quotes him in his letters. As early as June 91, June tells Romance he forgave him and still loves him. And maybe that's a means to an end, but I think he's sincere. Now, this is something that we should probably talk directly to June about, and it would be interesting to get Spanky's take on this. This idea of forgiveness. That is, June forgiving romance comes up repeatedly. Initially, it seems to be met with surprise, which, yeah. But then it comes up in different contexts. And he says, you know, when I found out you forgave me, I was determined to undo the done. And, you know, people talk about how big June's heart is because he forgave romance. Well, romance talks about how big his own heart is, and it will be even bigger when he fixes things. He talks about, quote, that thing in 89 and how mad he is at himself. And I'm guessing that's getting on the stand in front of June and lying. There's this interesting exchange in one of the letters at one time during the trial when they locked eyes. Romance remarks how unbelievably calm and stone-faced June was. It's bizarre. He tells June he thought that he would have had his mother brought into the courtroom as a defense strategy because just seeing her, he wouldn't have been able to go through with testifying against June. He always thought of himself as family. But perhaps the most egregious thing that I took away from reading these letters, and I reread them again recently, and I was reminded just how much I not only dislike Romance MacArthur, but how little respect I have for him. Not only did he kill someone and then pin it on a guy who he repeatedly refers to as family, a friend, a brother that he loves, and then he carries on for years, getting him to believe he will right this wrong, this injustice. Hell, we named this podcast after everything he did. He does all that and then pulls shit like this. I've been thinking, even though I shouldn't have done what I did, I'm glad it was me. Because somebody else would say fuck it and let you ride in a joint forever. Oh man, romance. If you are listening to this, I have some bad news for you. Because 33 years later, and June and Spanky are still rotting in the joint because of you and your actions. And I, I absolutely cannot get over this guy's fucking savior complex. Romance, in my opinion, is a textbook narcissist. He really did what he did, and then he wanted credit for helping get them out, which he never did. He just strung June along for years. And like I said, without the other side of these correspondences, it's, it's hard to put it in context, but 
June seems like he's receptive. I don't think June got played or anything. This is no knock on him. But what could he really do? He's got no choice but to go along with him, whether he believed him or not. This is purely speculative, but do you get the sense that Romance intended to help, or was this just always only about him? I mean, the the families have admitted to giving him money periodically. Was it all self-serving, or or do you think his intentions at one time were really to do the right thing? I think there may have been times where romance was feeling some sort of remorse or nostalgia about the past and had an intention of doing something, or I wouldn't even say intention necessarily, he had the thought of doing something when they're writing back and forth with each other, especially in the early days when they're all in prison and it's horrible. Um, But I think for the most part, romance is shown over and over again that he really only cares about himself. Um, Like you said, he didn't have to string him along all this time. Why was he even writing him in 2009 at that point when it's sort of twisting the knife? He'd already said a lot of these things before. There's no reason to reiterate it unless unless you really are thinking about something or considering something maybe, but the way that it comes across in his actions is what can I get out of this? Can Mary put more money on my books? Can your family put more? I mean, he says that in some of these letters. So I think it had more to do what he could get for himself than anything else at that point. The batch of letters from 97, they are less about the trial, about the evidence, about the murder. Uh, Romance talks about why communication had shut down. It was because June had given Romance's letters to uh, attorney John T. Droz, which Droz, I believe, was Angel's attorney. And Droz used the info to subpoena Romance and get him to discuss the things he'd been talking about, as any good lawyer would. But Romance was livid because he considers their letters private and confidential. So five years later, he starts writing again. They're, the letters in 97 are more reserved and tentative. Uh, the Droz thing really eroded some trust, so it's less about the case and, and more like two friends just catching up. Just some, some odd things. Apparently back in 1994, Romance discovered Seinfeld, and he goes into great detail describing entire episodes to June. He describes the, the Keith Hernandez episode where they spoofed the JFK assassination. Uh, he describes Mulva, soup Nazi. Uh, he explains how George works at the Yankees and how George Steinbrenner drives him nuts. Uh, in fact, George is the man, according to Romance. And I only bring this part up because it's interesting to me. It, it, it has no effect on any of the case. But it's just these, these snapshots in time as a sort of sociological study. Things that just seem like things to me or you, it goes to sort of humanize romance, in my opinion. All of these these pop culture touchstones. It's it's fascinating to me. He reiterates several times, the new season of Seinfeld starts September 11th, 7 o'clock your time. Don't forget, check it out. And there's also a a lot of uh, sports references. He talks about how the Portland Trailblazers can upset the Bulls in the finals. 
He talks about how Holyfield can beat Tyson, which happens to be one month before Tyson went to prison for rape. He talks about magic, getting HIV. He talks all these billionaire references for some reason. Like he follows Bill Gates and Paul Allen and George Soros, and he talks about their wealth. And coincidentally, how our former president is peanuts compared to those guys. And the Seinfeld stuff, by the way. Romance's breakdown of Seinfeld characters is as follows. George is the funniest, then Kramer, then Newman. Elaine is funny and sexy. Jerry isn't funny. So, just in case, like me, you were starting to humanize him, this should bring you back to reality. Alright, so the 97 letters, there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of meat there. This is all just sort of filler. What do you think? I think it's interesting. It's it's almost funny, um, if it wasn't so sad. Um, it's interesting that romance feels like he was betrayed when he's clearly admitting he did these things in the initial letters. What does he expect June to do? Trust him that at some point he's gonna come forward when when romance is the one that put him in there i I just think that's kind of it's unbelievably narcissistic and hypocritical and all of these things um but it's also crazy to me that he picks up and starts writing to him again like you put this man in prison forever and you think that he's gonna want to just write and catch up with you and like you said before what choice does june really have romance MacArthur was really the the thing that put them in prison because there wasn't physical evidence that indicated guilt romance is sort of the one thing that can truly undo it um in terms of getting back into court he would be the thing that they really need so I I just find it's ironic that that yeah let's just pick up and talk about pop culture and sports like you know two dudes having a, a beer in a bar yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating. He starts the next batch of letters, uh, the 2009 letters, by saying that he forgives Spanky. Like, how big of him, right? Like, he put an innocent man in prison for, at, at this point, 19 or so years. But, but he forgives Spanky. He's a grown man now. He's 40. He's matured. And it... It does seem as though he's gained some wisdom. The only way for him to move forward in life is not only to forgive, but to be forgiven. He wants to put things behind them. Some of that just means starting over. Again, because this long break in communication was because Romance was still pissed about the lawyer getting hold of the letters, and Romance no longer trusted June. So he's come to this point in his life. There's, there's still a hint of the savior complex stuff. You know, after I talk to Mary, things will make more sense. Some of the same stuff he'd been saying back in 1991. But he does come off a tad bit more contrite at times. And we'll close out with these. I always put other people's weight on my shoulders. If I felt I could hold up. I have never doubted your pain in this situation, and hopefully it's not too late. And? I don't have a lot of power to just change things, but I'm on your team, and I ultimately hope to help you and Spanky. And, and, and finally, 
all my times of hurting people, I never went after innocent people. Don't think that I don't think about the innocent people in your family that I've hurt. If I can correct this, I can really move on with ease in my life. And in the least, be forgiven by them. It's not too late, Romance. That wraps up episode five. Our next episode may be our last on this story for now. We have every intention of following this case and continuing to do anything we can to assist with June and Spanky getting out of prison. And that work will not stop. So keep following our socials, and we will keep posting as things progress. Uh, Lisa, I'll throw it to you. Just thanks to everyone for listening, and take a look at our social media to continue signing our petition and donating to the fundraiser, and we will be back next time. That's it. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Injustice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice production. This is a Blast Box Media Podcast.